Well, it's uh, very good to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation to uh, be part of this. Uh, I hope you've um, seen that what has come round is a, is a handout. Uh, that might be useful for you. Um, so just make sure you've got one of those if you'd uh, like one. I'd love it uh, through this session if as I'm going through something doesn't make sense if you just uh, stop me uh, because uh, that's the only way I'll know whether, whether we're all on the same page or not. Uh, I, I hope you've all got Bibles as well. Um, I'm sure you have. And uh, you might like to turn them to Isaiah uh, now uh, so that we're, we're ready when we get to various passages. Now, did you know that um, apart from the, the book of Psalms, the book of Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament of any Old Testament book? Just an interesting fact. Uh, but, but, but what's it about? What, what, what's the main thrust? What is the big point of Isaiah? I imagine that you know uh, lots of verses or passages from uh, the book of Isaiah. Uh, the suffering servant, uh, Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray, each one of us has turned to our own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, chapter 55, I mean, you might not even realise you know this, but as soon as I start quoting it, you'll remember it. Um, Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money, come and buy, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That's verse 1. Verse 11, my word goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish that for which I desire. Verse 12, you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. We've all sung the chorus uh, that goes with that. Um, uh, what about chapter 9 um, to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counsellor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace you were saying it along with me in your mind weren't you you've heard it so many times uh, chapter 6 that great vision uh, of, uh, of God that Isaiah has and uh, those words as Isaiah sees the holiness of God and he says woe is me do you remember that yeah of course you do and then who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I'll go, send me. You know, I could go on and on uh, with so many well-known parts of Isaiah. I imagine you know many verses and passages in Isaiah. Some you'll know you know, and some you don't even know you know, but when I say them, you know you know them. Oh, yeah. But what is the point? What is it all about? What's the big thrust? And so, uh, just for a moment, uh, either on your tables or in pairs, I'm going to give you just a, 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 well, two minutes, a minute each if you're in a pair, uh, to say, what is the point? What, what's, what's the big thrust? Where is Isaiah going? What's the big thing? Do you want to do that? Uh, just for two minutes. It will only be two minutes. There we are. Yes, when I was looking at this in my special, the... Um, uh, the thing that really opened up the book for me was to look at the, the book ends, uh, the beginning and uh, the end of the book. And that shows us the, the direction of travel for the book of Isaiah. So that's going to be the majority of what we do um, this morning. And uh, I've been preaching on it, obviously, at the beginning of se uh, September, if you've heard any of those. Hopefully you've begun to get a feel for this. So it shouldn't all come as brand new. And now, although we're only going to study in our small groups uh, chapters 1 to 12 this term, Keeping in mind this direction of travel of the whole book is crucial uh, to understand any one part of the book. That, of course, is true of any Bible study. Uh, when you understand how the whole book works, you understand the smaller part well. Um, it's just that we're just only looking at 12 chapters, so you might think, oh, why are we doing the whole thing? Now, you've got to understand the whole thing, really, uh, to be able to know what's going on in the first 12 chapters. Now, in summary, if you've got your uh, Bible open, uh, at chapter 1, verse 1. In summary, the book of Isaiah concerns uh, the, book, the people of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Here, that's uh, what we see in chapter 1, verse 1. And the opening chapters, chapters 1 to 5, they are an introduction in many ways to the book, uh, show that Judah and Jerusalem are thoroughly sinful. Uh, now, let me give you two examples. I've put them on the handout there. Uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Ah, sinful nation. It couldn't be more straightforward, could it? Sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They've forsaken the Lord, they've spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. So there's Judah, the nation, is thoroughly sinful. 
And then if you look over to chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, you'll see there's a brilliant, uh, well, it's an awful summary, but it's a brilliant summary of the state of Jerusalem, the city. Uh, Chapter 21, see how the faithful city has become a harlot. This city is like a prostitute in God's eyes. We're meant to really be be shocked by this. She once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your choice wine is diluted with water, your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves, they all love bribes and chase after gifts, they don't defend the cause of the fatherless, the widow's case does not come before them. And so in those uh, two um, examples, uh, we see really what we see through the, the first five chapters, that this book, chapter 1 verse 1, that is concerning Judah and Jerusalem, shows us that Judah and Jerusalem are thoroughly sinful through and through. Now turn with me to the end of the book, uh, if that's how the, the book begins. Turn with me to the end of the book, chapter 65 and 66. And uh, as we come to the other end, uh, what we find, remember where we started? Uh, Sinful Judah, uh, rebellious Jerusalem, uh, thoroughly sinful through and through. What we find at the end of the book is that um, we're in a a new heavenly Jerusalem uh, with a people who are are clean and who are wonderful uh, before the Lord. They're following him, no longer rejecting him. Uh, again, let me give you two examples. Again, I've put them on the handout. Uh, 65, 17 to 19. Uh, focusing in on Jerusalem, the city. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Be, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be de- a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. It's a wonderful picture. It's a wonderful picture whenever we hear it and whenever we read it. But it's brilliant when you've seen what's happened at the beginning of the book. You just don't expect it to come. Well, of course we do because we know the gospel. But if you'd never read anything of, 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 uh, of the gospel before, you read Isaiah 1-5 to and you, you can't see a way out. And here we are at the end with this glorious Jerusalem. It's a delight to the Lord. It's not a prostitute anymore. It's delightful. And then um, the people are mentioned there as well, but uh, in chapter 66, verse 20, uh, you get the, the, cleanliness, the cleanliness of the people uh, sort of coming out holy and clean. 66, 20, uh, they will bring all your brothers from all the nations. That's very important, that although this is written to Judah and Jerusalem, at the end we see all nations coming to this, this new place. Uh, from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem, again, see Jerusalem, as an offering to the Lord on horses in chariots and wagons on mules and camels, uh, says the Lord, they will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremony clean vessels. It's a clean place. Now you can, uh, they're they're just two little examples of what's going, where the book ends. And it it, it is unrecognisable from chapters 1 to 5, that's the point. So these bookends of Isaiah teach us that the book of Isaiah is about how God will transform a rebellious people uh, into a sinful Jerusalem um, to be a faithful people in the new heavenly Jerusalem. So transform a rebellious people in a sinful Jerusalem to be a faithful people in the new heavenly Jerusalem. That's the direction of travel. Now, uh, just uh, over the page on the handout, I've um, I've quoted William Dumbrell there, uh, which... William Dumble is the one who opened this book up to me best of all as I was doing my reading. And uh, here's one, one quote from him. Isaiah 1 presents us with the picture of a decadent Jerusalem whose sacrifices cannot any longer be accepted and whose prayers must be turned aside. Isaiah 1 functions as an introduction not only to Isaiah 1-12 to but to the whole book. Appropriately, therefore, the prophecy concludes, chapter 66, verses 20-24, to with the emergence of a new Jerusalem as God's holy mountain in which the world will go up in a pilgrimage of worship. That's saying what I've just said, but he said it before me. Um, So what I've said came after him. 
So Isaiah is the message of the mighty and glorious, transforming, redeeming power and the grace of the Holy One of Israel. Now, uh, let me just flesh this out a little bit more, just so that we get it, and we'll go back to chapters 1 to 5 for a little while, just so we we see it uh, very clearly. We've already seen a summary of the state of Judah from chapter 1 to 4. Um, And, you know, apart from two notable exceptions, which I'll come back to in a moment, the first five chapters of Isaiah demonstrate the utterly sinful state of the people of Judah. That's what it's there to do. And uh, so I wonder if, uh, if in, again, in pairs or on your tables, however you want to do this, I've put some, um, uh, uh, some, some verses to look at. Uh, and you might like to look at chapter 1, 5 to 6, or 1, 9 to 10, or uh, these other chapters there, these other sections there, to see um, these things, the extent of their sin, the comparison of their sin, and, the example, and examples of their sin. Would you like to do that? Yeah, just to break it up so you're not listening to me the whole time. Just have a look um, very quickly. It's not complicated, but just see how these opening chapters uh, show these things. Yeah, so that's brilliant. Chapter 1, 5 and 6. It's right the way through. Um, the whole head is injured, the whole heart afflicted, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. You can't get any further, can you? That's everything in you. There's no soundness in you. So that's how the Lord sees the people of Judah. Well, it's absolute. Um, they're simple through and through. Uh, what about um, uh, how he compares their sin? Chapter 1, 9 and 10. Uh, anybody with that? Anybody look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Now why is that so shocking for us? Just a little louder, sorry. Yeah. So, you know, Sodom, as soon as you hear Sodom and Gomorrah as Bible people, you should be thinking, well, they're completely obliterated. They, are, they were so wicked. They were completely... You remember Abraham pleading with them? What happens if there are... Uh, where does he start? Does he start 50 righteous men? I forget where he starts now. I didn't look it up in advance. Well, how about... Okay, if there's 40... Uh, how about if there's 10? You know, will you not destroy them? And there's no righteous people there. They're completely obliterated. And that's really quite shocking, isn't it, for us, that that, that's the state of Judah. They ought to have uh, that fall upon them. Now, in verse 9 it says, unless the Lord (laughs) were uh, gracious, they they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, actually. It it begins to show you the grace of God, even in verse 9. But in verse 10, oh, your rulers are just like uh, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just like them. Uh, In the... uh, uh, that's how he compares their sin. What about some um, examples of their sin? Either in chapter, well, chapter one, verses ten to fourteen. Anybody uh, see what's going on there? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Thank you. So no, just for the tape, as they say, when you're being when you're being interviewed for being, uh, you know, but with the police. Not that's ever happened to me. You understand? Just for the tape, uh, what Beryl said was that uh, there's no sincerity in their sacrifices. Um, so here they are being very religious. Uh, the Lord actually says, "Stop it!" Verse 13. Stop it! I don't, I don't want that. Um, so it's meaningless. Um, it means nothing. Their religion. And chapter one, verses 21 to 23. What's uh, what's missing in the uh, in the city? Anybody look at? Maybe you didn't get on to those verses. Righteousness is missing. Yeah, righteousness and and justice. So you'll see. Actually, it's worth looking at this if if you if you want to chase it up. How often the words righteousness and justice come in the first five chapters? Both in seeing that God is just and righteous. You see that in in chapter uh, five, I think. Um, and, and that they're not um, and so this righteousness and justice is missing and that really grieves the Lord that his people are not like that now as you study chapters 1 to 4 and I think it's well worth having because there's so, 1 to 4, 1 to 5 really as you see those first 5 chapters um, they're worth keep coming back to that's where, that's where Judah and Jerusalem's at and so anything that you see from there um, is, is any, any improvement is a surprise 
Um, the grace of God is a surprise because uh, he really shouldn't be, you know, if he wasn't who he is, um, they, there would be no hope for them. Uh, so it's, uh, Isaiah spends five chapters giving us an introduction so we should really get to grips with this and see um, and, and have it always in our heads. Um, so we've seen those kind of expressions, those, those sort of things, the extent of their sin, the comparison of their sin, the examples of their sin. Um, but in all of this, I've just written down a couple of things on, on the handout. Uh, we mustn't lose sight of ultimately what sin is and where all expressions of sin flow. Um, so again, a couple of verses, just for you to, to have these, these verses underlined and clear in your own mind so that when you're teaching it, others will, uh, you can keep reminding them, this is what sin is. Um, for, for that reason, I, I lo- chapter 1, verse 4, I don't love because it's so awful, but I love it because it's so clear. Uh, chapter 1, verse 4, this is what sin is, end of verse 4, chapter 1, forsaking the Lord, spurning the Holy One of Israel, turning their backs on him. It's very important to see that's what's in it. That's what makes... So often we look at people, don't we, today, and we think they're really very moral. They're lovely people. They surely aren't under the judgment of God. And I think of a, a lady that uh, used to live across the road from us when I was in London. A couple, actually. They were delightful. Um, they, um, uh, when, when our twins were born, they never had children of their own. When, when our twins were born, they, they came and they were very interested. And, and they, they never pushed their noses in. They were a lovely couple and uh, they, they sort of sent uh, cards and, and, and presents and things and they were just delightful and uh, just, you know, lovely people to have as neighbours. Um, they'd have looked after the house when we went. If we'd have had a cat, they'd have looked after the cat when we went away. We didn't have one. I almost wanted to get one just so they could do that. They were lovely. But, um, you know, I asked them to the carol service every year and they never came. And they're sinful for that. You know, not because the carol service, but it was a, a demonstration of we don't want anything to do with God. That's the heart of, of sin, uh, and that's really what's going on here. Uh, so don't be thrown by, oh yeah, but our, our, you know, we know people are righteous and kind. No, this is the real problem. Uh, and you see the same in chapter 5, verse 24. Um, well, not the same, but another... Um, expression, demonstration of, 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 of what really is sin. Uh, do you see it there? 5.24 Why does judgment come upon them? For, halfway through, they rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Um, so when I reject God's word, I am rejecting God. When I uh, spurn the law of the Lord, I am uh, rejecting God. Now again, I just think we need to be clear on this. Sometimes we kind of make a bit of a, an unhelpful distinction between the Word of God and God himself. Now don't misunderstand, I'm not saying this is God. But do, do see it like this. If I say to my children, please will you do this, and they don't do it, they are rejecting me. They can't say, oh, well I'm not rejecting you, Dad, I'm just rejecting what you said. They're rejecting me. They are disobeying me. There's no difference between my word and me, is there? And so when people reject the word of God, they are rejecting God. That's why we keep having the word of God open. That's how we know if we're obeying them or not. So I think it's really important to keep that as the, the root of sin, um, uh, because otherwise we'll get bogged down in you know, sort of looking at people's lives when we look at chapters 1 to 5, look at our own lives, say, well, you know, we're actually, we're not doing all of that, we're quite good, aren't we? No, no, we're really not very good at all. Uh, now, I hope it's worth spending a little bit of time on that. Uh, please take note of the, spe- of the greatest um, expression, then, of that sin that's in, this, uh, in these opening five chapters. And, and they come in chapter 2, verses 5 to 22. Um, now, look, I, I was going to do a section on this, but I don't think we've really got the time. But I preached on this section deliberately when we did chapters 1 to 5, um, because um, you might remember in chapter, five verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, the section begins with, Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And it ends, chapter 5, verse 22, Stop trusting in man who has a breath in his nostrils of what account is he. Now it's a section, you'll see it's a section when you study it, and hopefully from when I preached it. Um, and it's a section that says, don't, don't, uh, let's walk in the light of the Lord, don't trust in man. 
Um, and the big thrust then is for Judah to stop trusting in themselves and begin to trust in the Lord, walk in his way. And as you read through this section, you'll see that their problem is arrogance and pride. Now, I won't go through it all because I've preached on it a few weeks ago um, and, uh, and I don't think we've really got quite the time. Uh, but if you weren't there or if you want to listen again, um, you, can, uh, you, can, you can have a listen online and you'll see that the big thrust is, is their pride and their arrogance. Um, uh, you'll see those words coming out again and again. So look, verse 9. Man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Do not forgive them. Um, verse 11. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. Verse 12. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for the proud and lofty. Uh, for all that is exalted, they will be humbled. And then actually the next little section is all about great things being humbled. Now, verse 17, the arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. It's when you see these constant repetitions within a section, you begin to understand what a section's about. You know that, you've been doing Bible study for many years. But, but that's the thing to look for. And it's right there, deliberately, right in the heart of these five chapters, uh, to say there's a real problem. Um, a great, the great expression, the greatest expression of rebellion against God is pride. Um, and indeed that is Satan's sin. Uh, which, Sorry, I, I'm thinking of many other things I could say at this point, none of which will be helpful because it will muddy the waters. But Satan's sin is pride. He wants to be God. That's the real problem. Um, so that's a very important section as well. Um, and uh, just uh, for your information, by contrast, what you get at the end of the book is that it is those who are humble and contrite and who tremble at God's word who the Lord is delighted in. Chapter 66, verse 2, if you want to take a note of it. It's a wonderful verse. And it really is in great contrast to the rest of the book. Um, who is it I esteem? Uh, those who are humble and contrite and tremble at my word, says the Lord. Um, so that, it, all, all that is uh, by way of saying um, that, uh, that 1 to 5 is all about uh, sinful, the sinfulness of man, uh, of mankind, particularly of Judah and, and of Jerusalem, uh, demonstrating that, how they are proudly, arrogantly trusting themselves and that is what sin is. Um, and this um, issue of pride and arrogance runs right through the book of Isaiah. It was quite striking when we did this uh, with the... Um, uh, with, with, the, with the ministry trainees in this room on Thursdays uh, last term, how arrogance and pride came up again and again and again. It was always the thing that was the, the result of brought judgment upon, upon people, but it comes up in Isaiah lots. The thing is, because we're doing 1 to 12, we won't quite see that, uh, but it's massive. And we will see it in chapter 7, we'll see it in Ahaz, uh, chapter 7 and 8, but we won't see it as big as it really is. So I'm trying to emphasise it's bigger than you would realise by just doing 1 to 12. Arrogance and pride always is judged. Now we see that, that judgement then, which is the real problem. You see, this is all the gospel that you know, but it's wonderful to see it. Uh, what's the problem? Uh, we're sinful. What is sin? We've seen what that is. Um, what's the real problem? The real problem is that we're coming under the judgement of God. Um, now we'll see this in chapter 5 in just a moment I'm going to get Ben to read out uh, chapter 5 verses 8 to 30 which is where the, where, the fir- where the summary ends so you've got this whole thing of how sinful we are you've got this whole thing of what sin is you see that pride and arrogance is right at the heart of sin and then you see judgement coming and here again it's just the gospel this is why we have to be so desperate to tell people about the Lord Jesus because they might say oh well I'm sinful but I can live without God anyway can't I no you can't because there's going to come a day when judgement is going to to come upon you that's the real problem Um, men and women are facing a lost eternity without Christ and that's what you get in chapter 5 so um, well, again, I preached on this, so, uh, so hopefully this will be fairly familiar, but I thought it would be great just to listen to it. Um, chapter 5, verses 8 to 30. Sorry, I should have put that on at the bottom of page 2. This quote refers to chapter 5. Um, and um, Let me read the quote, and then I'll get Ben to read chapter 5. There is a growing intensity as the unit progresses. First one woe, then another then four strung together in quick succession. Similarly, there is a 
First, a single announcement of judgment introduced by the Lord Almighty is declared in verse 9. Then a double, therefore, in verse 13 and 14. And finally, another in verses 24 and 25, where the judgment takes on cosmic, world-shattering proportions. So I just think it would be great if we just heard this well-read. And as you listen to it, hear the woe, the, Lord, the Lord's pain as he sees how his people have rejected him. And then when he says, therefore you see this is what's going to happen as a result of rejection. So Ben, would you like to do that for us? Uh, Isaiah 5, 8 to 30. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing surely the great houses will become desolate the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a homer of seed, only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night for those flames of wine, their harps and lyres and their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limits. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their rulers and brethren. So, mankind will be brought low and mankind humbled. The eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the Holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Then sheep will graze as in their own pastures, lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit, and wickedness as with cart ropes to those who say, Let God home. Let him hasten his work so that we may see it. Let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so that we, we, we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes of drinking wine and champions of mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay, and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty, and spread the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations and whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one of them slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a fat sandal thong is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hoofs seem like flints. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened <coughs> by the clouds. Ben, thank you very much. Now, I, I hope it's, it's so good when the Bible's read well, it almost preaches itself, doesn't it? Did you, did you feel that, the weight of that? 
And, uh, and the, 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 the comment from Barry Webb, did you feel the growing intensity and the judgment of cosmic world chattering proportions? Um, now, we're over the page, page three on the handout. I'm going to go a lot faster now. The introduction to this book then ends with Judah and Jerusalem under the threat of cataclysmic judgment. So in summary, the first five chapters show that Judah and Jerusalem is thoroughly sinful, rejecting the Lord, arrogantly being proud and trusting themselves, and as a result, facing the judgment of God. But that's not the end of the story. Obviously, there's another 61 chapters. But it should be the end of the story, and you should feel that. Um, You see, throughout this book, Isaiah describes God as the Holy One of Israel. You'll see that phrase coming again and again. Only a couple of the other Bible writers use it once or twice. It's Isaiah's phrase, really, for, for who God is. He's the Holy One of Israel, and his holiness should mean that this utter sinfulness should be judged. End of story. But the Holy One of Israel is also the Lord, the covenant God of promise. And so, well, we know where it's going to end, but even in these opening chapters, full of sin and judgment, uh, there are wonderful moments of hope. And um, again, I put some on there. One thing I I should have put on the handout, it only grabbed me again as I was looking at it uh, right at the end of this week, uh, to, to think of this, that even in the judgment passages, the ones we've just heard, um, God is showing his kindness. He is warning them not to say, you know, in a finger-wagging way, I'm going to get you and there is no way out. He's saying, this will come upon you if you don't turn back to me. Please turn back to me. That's what they're there for, you see. So even in the judgment passages, it is out of God's kindness He's not saying, this is it, you haven't got any hope, just wait, I'll get you. But um, I'm warning you of what is coming so that you will come back to me. And the way Ben read the word woe, uh, we felt that. He's not happy about this, he's he's heavy-hearted. But look, um, then there's these great moments of hope uh, that are very clear. Um, Chapter 1, verse 18 is one that you can't miss, really, uh, because it comes so obviously... um, Uh, in in this section. Uh, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. How amazing. We've just seen in the first 17 verses of of Isaiah how wicked the people of Judah are. And then then the Lord, the the maker of heaven and earth, uh, the one who who, who is in control of everything, when these people have just been kicking sand in his face and shaking their fists at him, say to him, let's reason together. How gracious of God. And then how amazing of God. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. There's a little glimpse of, I've got something more to say, even though you're like this. But the two great, chap- the two great sections in, this, um, in, this, uh, in, this, uh, in these first five chapters that really demonstrate this are chapter 2, 1 to, five, uh, 1 to 4, and chapter 4, 2 to 6. And in those two sections, uh, you'll see... Um, that we're given a little glimpse of what we actually see in chapter 65 and 66. Uh, I wonder how long... We, we should be finished at quarter past, shouldn't we? Is that right? Uh, so we're going to have to go... Uh, one minute. One, uh, have, a, have one minute. Have a read through chapter 2, 1 to 4, chapter 4, 2 to 6. You can probably only do one of them. And, um, and as you read through, just have a, have a think. What is, this, what is this pointing to? What is this telling me about? Why is this so different from everything else I've seen in chapters 1 to 5? I gave you too many questions to do in one minute, but there we are. You can talk together if you want. Okay, sorry, we haven't got long, but um, hopefully as you've read through those, um, those two sections, you'll see that they're, they're wonderful, they're great glimpses of light in a very dark, dark uh, cha- chapters. Um, did you see in chapter 2, 1 to 5, we discover a Jerusalem that is a good place to be, so different from this, may I use this phrase, because I think it's what's going on, the whore of a place that, that Jerusalem is at the time, a beautiful place, a clean place. Um, so very different, where all nations will be, where God's law will be embraced and proclaimed as opposed to rejected, where God will judge with equity as opposed to these awful leaders who are uh, leading so badly, where all war will be ended. It's glorious. 
And then in chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, you've got the heavenly Jerusalem, a beautiful and glorious place. It's all pointing towards chapter 65 and 66. Uh, it's a place where the city, in, the, in this city, people are called holy, so different from their unholiness. All filth washed away. Uh, in this city, God's glory will be known and his real presence known. That's the stuff with the smoke and all of that. That's the presence of God. It'll be a safe place. It's glorious. And so, um, you'll see, these, these sections are dropped into the first five chapters to give us a glimpse of where the whole book is heading. Somehow, I mean, we know the answer because we know the Gospel, but when you're reading this for the first time, somehow, despite how thoroughly sinful the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem is, it is the Lord says here that he's going to do something spectacular to, to transform the people and the city, to make a new heavenly Jerusalem populated by a holy people. Uh, and, uh, and so, um, uh, chapters 1 to 5 lay out not, for us, not, not only the, the ruinous state of Jerusalem, but if I may use this phrase, like a great overture at the beginning of a brilliant score of music, the opening chapters give us a, a, the theme tune for where the book is heading. And those of you who like going to musicals, you know, and those sorts of things, we'll think, yeah, that's right. We get a little, we get all the tunes coming in in the overture. And we think, oh, there's some great bright hopes. If you were to, if you were to put this to music, uh, chapter one would be in a minor key, and chapter two would be in a, in a major happy key. Uh, well, at least the first bit would. That's kind of... Anyway, look, I'm out of my depth here. I don't know anything about this. <laughs> my wife's looking at me thinking, what does he know about this? Don't stay on that for long, Paul. <laughs> uh, now, uh, we've got, uh, got ten minutes. I can get through the rest of it in time. Any questions at this point before we go over the page onto the historical setting of Isaiah? I spent a long time on that because I think if you get that, you get where the book's going. Happy enough? This either means it's all clear or you're thinking, I just want him to stop and if I ask questions, he'll ne- he will never stop. I'll, I'll go for the first. I'll be confident. Um, okay, on to the historical setting of Isaiah. Very important. This is not the point to switch off where you think, oh yeah, this is a bit boring. It's, it's really important. Uh, the, interna- the introduction to Barry Webb's uh, Bible Speaks Today commentary is very helpful. We've got some copies here, but I think, I gather, they've all been emailed as well. Um, so very, very useful. It doesn't take very long to read, but we'll give you the historical, uh, the historical setting uh, in a nutshell uh, without you having to do all the hard work. I'm going to encourage you to do in a moment, but there we are, you can do that. Now, chapter 1, verse 1, again, gives us the historical setting of the book of Isaiah. Um, and uh, so there's a number of things that I'll, I'll point out from just chapter 1, verse 1. Um, it's great when, when the, the Bible tells you everything you need to know, isn't it? Um, uh, it's how it should be. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is the vision concerning, I've already said this, Judah during the reigns of uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. I've um, emphasised Judah. Um, the book of Isaiah is addressed to Judah, not Israel. Now it's very important to make the distinction. It will become very, very important when we get on to chapter 7 to 12 and beyond. Because when we get to chapter 7, King Ahaz is the king of Judah. You can see that from chapter 1, verse 1. And he is worried about Israel and Syria, who've made an alliance, as well as the Assyrians, who are the great superpower. But he's worried about Israel and, and Syria coming upon him in some way. He's tempted to make an alliance with them against Syria because he's worried about the Assyrians. Now I'm telling you all that, I'll tell you more when we do it. You'll see all this in the notes in time. But the point is this, if you haven't made a distinction between Judah and Israel in your head, you'll be going, um, Judah is Israel and now they're thinking of making an alliance with Israel and Israel are possibly coming upon Judah. What's going on? Now, it's okay, some of you it will be very clear to, but it's well worth, if, you, if it's clear to you, make sure you make the point to your groups when we get to chapter 7, um, that uh, by this time, uh, uh, Judah and Israel have separated. Um, now, you can read all about it, as they say in, uh, in the newspaper industry, in 1 Kings chapter 12. Read all about it. And it would be good to read all about it, because in 1 Kings chapter 12, it shows you how the, um, how the split came between the northern tribes, the ten tribes that are by this time called Israel, 
and the two southern tribes that are called Judah. Uh, very important. But it all revolves around these two characters, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. This is one of those moments when you wish that they had very different names because you get kind of confused. Which one's which? Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. You can read all about this. Don't bother sort of jotting loads of things down. But Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. He was made king. Jeroboam had rebelled against Solomon and, um, and basically um, they had a bit of a spat. And uh, people, the, the, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin went with Rehoboam who was the son of Solomon and therefore was the line of Judah. Um, and, and they split. The kingdom is split from that moment on, from 1 Kings 12 on. Very important then to grasp that this is written to Judah. And is that what? Uh, good question. Did we, I think we were giving a little sheet earlier, weren't we, with um, where, the, where the king... How, how many years is it? It's about, I mean, it's a bit stubborn, but about 10th century BC, and then I died in 8th century Yeah, so yeah, about 200 years ago. Thank you. See, I told you, eh? good to have been. Good to have been. Um... So that's one thing, Judah, the historical setting. Secondly, Jerusalem, again, chapter 1, verse 1, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So the entire book of Isaiah is based in Jerusalem. It's remarkable. Uh, we've already seen how often Jerusalem pops up. Um, but even when we're looking, uh, we won't do it now, but even when you, when you look on, uh, to look at all the kind of big nations of the world around in chapter 13 to 27, it's still all centred in Jerusalem. And what's the point of that? It's because we're heading to the new Jerusalem. Now, you don't need to know any more than that. Uh, But the reason that Jerusalem figures so big is because Jerusalem is terribly sinful and we're heading to the new Jerusalem, which is going to be wonderful. So that's why it's focused there. Um, And I've put various uh, references uh, on um, on the handout. The third thing you need to know, the kings. So chapter 1, verse 1 again. This is set during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. Again, the opening uh, verse tells us that. And then we get some key markers through the book. So, we'll look at tomorrow, uh, when when I preach on it, chapter 6, verse 1. Do you remember? In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that's not just a historical marker, although it is. It's going to tell us something very, very significant that we should be understanding. And whenever these, these markers come up, we should look back to the Bible books of Kings and Chronicles to give us the historical background that we need. Uh, so you don't have to be a great historian. You don't have to turn to other books. You don't have to get your, um, uh, you know, your, your um, I don't know, your, your history books out. The Bible gives you everything you need to understand this. So whenever these kings are mentioned, but they are really worth looking into the background. Look at two Kings and two Chronicles whenever these things come up. Um, it's a general principle that we could have that. But one book of the Bible is explained by another. Um, so, just as taking us outside of Isaiah, when, um, when you study the book of um, Ephesians, you should always have um, Acts, the book of Acts in your mind, particularly Acts chapter 19. Because if you read Acts chapter 19, you see how, how, what, what the state of Ephesus and how the church was, uh, was born in, in Ephesus. You begin to understand why certain things are written in the book of Ephesians the way they are. So in Acts chapter 19, do you remember um, people were practicing sorcery and they publicly burned their books of magic worth 50,000 drachma when they turned to Christ? It was a huge moment. And what do we read in in, in Ephesians? We read about the powers and rulers and dark forces of this world. You're in a spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood. Why? That was so big. I mean, it's always true for everybody, but it's so big in Ephesus, you see. So if you get into that habit of thinking uh, there, are, there are books I should automatically, whenever I'm reading the Bible, link together, uh, it gives you all the background you need. It's brilliant. Now, you should do that with the kings. And uh, hopefully, if you come tomorrow morning, or if you listen tomorrow morning, you'll, you'll begin to see how it opens up. Uh, chapter 6, uh, when we look at... This was the year that King Uzziah died. Why was that so significant? Why did they need to see a vision of the Lord? Uh, when King Uzziah died. I'll tell you all that tomorrow. Uh, that lead, leads us on to... Are we okay so far? Okay. Uh, let's lead on to the structure of Isaiah and then we're almost done. 
Um, and again, this is the moment we think, our oh, structure, historical setting, these are the moments to switch off. Oh, no, no, don't switch off. Stay with us just a little bit longer, because this is really helpful. Um, I, well, it's helpful to me, I think it will be helpful to you. Uh, it's all on, the, uh, all on the handout. Isaiah, uh, I, I think, has two main sections. Uh, there's obviously other, other Bible writers who are uh, much more gifted and able than me would, would do other things. But I think two very clear sections, chapters 1 to 39 and chapters 40 to 66. Um, now, I won't go into 40 to 66 at the moment. Um, but while we're only looking at 1 to 12 this term, grasping the structure of the book, and especially how the first half of the book works, it will open up uh, the, 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 the chapters we are looking at for us. Uh, so I've, I've written down here very clearly, uh, I think, uh, 1 to 39, how that is split up. 1 to 5, the introduction, the sinfulness of Judah, we've seen that, with, of course, a little pictures of, of where the whole book is going. Chapter 6, Isaiah's commissioning to a ministry of judgment. And then chapter 7 to 39 is a bit I just want to focus on for us in the last couple of minutes. Um, how, uh, how in that whole section, Judah is called on to trust the Lord. Now again, when I, when I sort of was shown this on my sabbatical, I suddenly, it suddenly opened up this whole section to me. It was brilliant. I've never understood Isaiah and how it fitted together. And this bit goes, bang, wow, I understand this now, at least uh, in, a big, in a big section. I don't understand every single verse, of course, but I understand how this works. In, in chapters 7 to 12, and then in 36 to 39, you've got, they form a bracket to the whole section. And it can be clearly seen, I've written, have I written all this down? Um, yeah, yeah. It can be clearly seen in, when you look at 7 to 12, the story of Ahaz, and 36 to 39, the story of Hezekiah, the two kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah. Firstly, they are the only sections of narrative in the whole book. Uh, so you actually get some story, I, I quite like preaching on story bits, because uh, it kind of, but you, it's the only bits you get in Isaiah. Um, but secondly, have a look at chapter 7, verse 3 with me. Now this is um, Isaiah speaking to Ahaz, King Ahaz, of the, he's the king of the time. And there is, the, the, there is, there is a, a military threat from the north, that's all you need to know at the moment. And Isaiah meets with Ahaz, and chapter 7, verse 3 uh, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shea Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Now, that might not mean very much to you and me, but um, it meant a lot to him. And it was, a, it's again, a nice geographical moment. Go and meet the king um, on the washerman's field um, at, the end of the, um, at the end of the road there, on the road to the washerman's, washerman's field road at the aqueduct. Now, turn with me to chapter 36, verse 2, if you will. There goes the bell. I'm now over time, but I did start late. I'm sorry, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll stop as soon as we can. 36.2. This now is Hezekiah, also with a great threat from, the, from a military threat from the north, the Assyrians. And look what happens. Verse 2. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem when the commander stopped where the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. It's the same place. Wow. So it's exactly the same setting except it's different. Two kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, uh, both with a military threat from the north coming down upon them, both meeting, well different people were both meeting in exactly the same spot and what you find then is in chapter 7 to 12 King Ahaz spectacularly fails to trust the Lord and that results in judgement for the whole nation, it's awful in chapter 36 to 39 King Hezekiah does trust the Lord and there is this spectacular deliverance for the whole nation of Judah now, Hezekiah isn't perfect, there's a bit of a problem with him a bit later on, but, but basically at that point he does what Ahaz didn't do. And so you've got one king who doesn't trust and one king who does. And when they don't trust, they end in judgment. When they do trust, they're delivered. And so you begin to see, oh, this section is all about trusting. 
And so even when you come to other sections we're not going to look at, it begins to open up to you why, why they're written as they are and how they're teaching us to trust the Lord. It's very simple, which is why I think the overall title for the sermon series is Transforming the People to Trust, or something like that, uh, because of this trust transformation, chapters one, uh, chapter 1 to chapter 66, great transformation, and it comes about through trust. It's very simple, it's not very complicated at all. Um, yeah, so chapter 7 to 12, big theme is trust, and uh, in four sentences I'll end. Uh, uh, this is how it fits with the opening five chapters. Judah has turned her back on the Holy One of Israel, she will not trust the Lord. Judah is proud, she trusts herself and her idols rather than the Lord. In failing to trust the Lord, Judah is under judgment. And here's the key thing, trusting the Lord is the only way to reach the new heavenly Jerusalem. And so in chapters 40 to 66, we're introduced to the one who who we should trust. We're not going to see that in our studies. Uh, The servant of the Lord. Uh, Through his ministry, we can be forgiven and restored to get to the new Jerusalem. So if we trust him, uh, we will be in the new heavenly Jerusalem with the Lord. Um, But we are given little glimpses of of him, the servant of the Lord, in chapters 7 to 12. So look out for those as well. So I put on the end of the the handout a purpose statement, taking a sinful people in Jerusalem under judgment and transforming them into the holy people of God, at peace with God, in the heavenly Jerusalem, by teaching them to trust in the Holy One of Israel. I think that's a fair at least a fair starter of a purpose statement. If you keep going back to that purpose statement, you'll understand where we're going and why we're saying what we're saying in each of the studies as we do them. It's um, 12 uh, 19, four minutes over time, but I think we did start a few minutes late, so you'll forgive me because you're forgiving people. Do we have any questions? We all need to go. Shall I? I'll hand back to you. Thank you very much, uh, Paul. Thank you for all your uh, labours uh, in Isaiah. I really do hope uh, Isaiah is a, a really a fruitful field for you and your groups uh, in the coming weeks and the lead up to Christmas. Thank you so much again for giving up uh, your morning. Uh, I really hope it has been an encouragement to you. Thank you especially to those who have fed and watered us uh, as we've gone along. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, let me pray for us. Father God, thank you uh, for your goodness to us. Thank you that you speak this word, uh, that we may trust you. And we pray, Father, that as uh, we read this book of Isaiah together as a church family in the coming months, uh, that you would cause us indeed uh, to trust you, and especially your servant uh, who has served us. Amen. Thank you.